Welcome back to the podcast. This is part two of our SMFM review on polyhydramnios. In this session, we're going to cover intrapartum management. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. All right, team, as quick review, remember that polyhydramnios is defined as greater than 8 centimeters in the deepest vertical pocket or greater than 24 centimeters in the AFI. Remember that the AFI is most likely to overcall oligohydramnios, while the single deepest pocket may sometimes overstate the incidence of polyhydramnios. Nonetheless, the ACOG and the SMFM both agree that either can be used for fluid determination, although most experts recommend using the deepest vertical pocket for determination of amniotic fluid. Labor in the presence of polyhydramnios can be complicated by fetal non-vertex presentations, with rates increasing as the severity of polyhydramnios increases. Clinical or sonographic determination of the fetal presenting part should be performed upon presentation in labor. External version for non-vertex fetal presentation may be considered if there's no other contraindication to the procedure. There's a higher rate of dysfunctional labor in the presence of polyhydramnios. Studies have shown that women with pregnancies complicated by idiopathic poly are significantly more likely to undergo a cesarean delivery, with rates ranging from 35 to 55%. An increased risk of operative vaginal delivery in the presence of poly has also been reported. One retrospective case control study demonstrated that the first stage of labor can be prolonged in the presence of poly and that the rate of amniotomy was significantly increased. Now, if amniotomy is to be performed and the poly is moderate or severe, performing a controlled amniotomy in the operating room with a spinal or a pudendal needle has been suggested. However, a clear advantage for this approach has not been demonstrated. Non-reassuring fetal heart rate tracings have also been reported to be more frequent in polyhydramnios patients, but this has not been reported by all investigators. Likewise, an increased risk for postpartum hemorrhage has been inconsistently reported. Regardless of the mode of delivery, the SMFM and experts agree that pediatric support should be available at delivery for women with even mild idiopathic poly. It is recommended that women with severe polyhydramnios do deliver at a tertiary center due to the significant possibility that fetal anomalies may be present. Now, before we get into some of the specifics on intrapartum care, a quick word about spontaneous preterm delivery. Preterm delivery rates are not generally increased with idiopathic poly, but that's usually because, remember, that idiopathic poly is usually mild, but preterm delivery is associated with more severe polyhydramnios. Reported data on whether perinatal mortality is increased with idiopathic polyhydramnios has been inconsistent. Several group of investigators, two in case control studies and one in a retrospective cohort investigation, have identified no increase in rates of stillbirth or neonatal death associated with idiopathic poly. 
Now, in contrast, other authors reported a fetal death rate of 1.2%, and another study found perinatal mortality rates of up to 3.7% with apparently idiopathic poly, which was more than twice the rate among controls. So the take-home message is that perinatal mortality can be elevated, but it's not across all studies. We have to step back for just a minute and review this issue of intrauterine fetal death with Polly because the data really is kind of everywhere across the map. In 2015, Paleod et al. used birth certificate data to review more than 1.8 million singleton non-anomalous births in California, of which 0.4% were identified to have polyhydramnios. Now, acknowledging the limitation of birth certificate data, including a lack of information on the degree of poly, those authors found that the ongoing risk of fetal demise was greater in otherwise low-risk pregnancies affected by poly at all gestational ages, with the greatest increase being at term. So once again, although some studies did not show an increased rate of intrauterine fetal demise, some did. That's why the issue of antepartum fetal surveillance was discussed in the first session. Even though we mentioned this in part one, it's worth repeating again. The most recent guidance from the American College of OBGYN on antepartum fetal surveillance does not specifically address isolated polyhydramnios or list it as an indication for surveillance. Now, although antepartum surveillance is often performed in this setting, there's no data to suggest that this assessment decreases perinatal mortality. So, the SMFM suggests that antenatal fetal surveillance is not required for the sole indication of mild idiopathic polyhydramnios. All right, podcast family, that's it. Nice and quick as we wrap up this session on polyhydramnios. The material for this podcast came from the SMFM console series for polyhydramnios. Thanks for being part of our podcast family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls. Music.